You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 54, through chapter 13, verse 9. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed give your word success, that you would uh, feed us, that you would nourish us, that you would bring life where it is needed, that you would indeed come now, Almighty King. We pray that we would see you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night and a lower elementary night. So if you are a lower elementary kid and already have a sticker with your name on it, or if you're a fourth through sixth grader and want to talk about this interesting text, we'll see you later. Have a good time, everyone. Uh, Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, It's good to see you all here. If I haven't met you, I would love to after this service. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Welcome. We have been working our way through the gospel according to Luke. Uh, Two Fridays ago, you guys remember this? Uh, One of my sons said he looked at the weather app on Thursday afternoon, uh, but then on Friday, he went to school and he was shocked because it snowed on him. Uh, the day before, he looked at a phone, and on Thursday, it said there was like a 10% chance of rain. And then on Friday, he was shocked, shocked when it snowed. Uh, 
depending on what part of town you were in, remember this? Two Fridays ago, it snowed for like 30 minutes. It got cold for like an hour, and then winter was over. Uh, but like, my, my, my son was shocked. Like, that was not supposed to happen. The phone said that was not going to happen. Uh, 100 or 150 years ago or so, the only way that we had to forecast the weather was a farmer's almanac. Have you ever seen one of these? It's a book of what have been like the historical weather trends for this place in the country on this day of the year. And so you kind of just have to guess. Uh, but today, we forecast everything. We forecast the weather, we forecast political elections and polls, we forecast global warming and pandemics, we forecast sporting events and future champions, like not just like the betting odds of like what might happen at a game on Saturday or Sunday, but like even in-game. Like you can bet on anything and everything and like ESPN is giving you like line graphs on like who's gonna win and who's gonna turn the ball over or whatever like in the next two minutes, so they think. We forecast the stock market, we forecast the inflation and the economy, we forecast our own personal finances and our own company's sales, profits, losses. Shoot, we even forecast the end of the world. Not like in a when is Jesus going to return kind of way, though that's definitely a thing people do as well. But have you heard of the doomsday clock? Uh, if you just Google the doomsday clock, this is a, a clock on a website that gets up, updated. Uh, every year, and these so-called experts are saying when they think like the end of humanity is going to come uh, because of nuclear war, and if it strikes midnight, well, that's the end. And so every year, the, the minute hand gets closer or further away from midnight. Uh, why do we do this? I mean, doesn't trying to forecast things just make us frustrated or disappointed? When we bank on something to be right and then it's not, this can be very, very disorienting, especially if it might mean economic loss. Like we buy tons of stock here because this is what we were told to do and then it was wrong. On the other hand, forecasting, even if imprecisely, can help us to plan for the future and then live accordingly. Though my son wasn't emotionally prepared for the joy of snow that Friday, he at least wore a rain jacket to school that kept him dry. Well, our text tonight is all about forecasting, understanding the changing reality of the present, how that will affect the future, and then responding rightly then in the present. So we're going to think through our text tonight just in two sections, uh, thinking about the certainty of the future and then the urgency of the present. The certainty of the future and the urgency of the present, which under that second section, Jesus is going to give three different scenarios and applications for us. All right, so let's get into it. The certainty of the future. Last week, we saw Jesus warning his hearers and then more directly warning his disciples. He was warning those with spiritual authority who will serve in the household of God. He was warning them to be prepared, to be alert for his coming, to be faithful as they wait for his coming, and to be united as his newly gathered people for his coming. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus turns his attention once again back to the wider crowds. And so in verse 54, he also, now after having talked to his disciples for a moment, he also said to the crowds, hey, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, what he's describing here might not be immediately clear to us. Like if we see clouds in the west, like over the volcanoes, that might or might not mean anything for us. But here, 
to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, if you saw clouds coming in from the west, it means only one thing. Clouds mean only that you're about to get wet. Remember in 1 Kings 18, after years and years of drought, Elijah sent his servant seven times to go see if there were any clouds coming from the west. And finally, his servant says, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. There it is, a tiny little cloud. But finally, just from that one tiny little cloud, everyone knows rain is coming. And in the same way, when the winds would change, not the cooler, wetter winds from the north or the west, but when you feel the wind change to now blow from the south, it's about to get really hot and really dry. Jesus is saying something here that everyone knows. He's not describing anything that even the smallest children don't understand. None of these people are meteorologists. They don't have advanced forecasting models. He's just appealing to them that when you see something obvious, you know what's about to happen. He could have just as easily said to us, all right, you people in Albuquerque, you know that like when the calendar turns over to April 1st, you know what's about to happen. It's about to get really windy. Or when you eat a breakfast burrito from Blake's at 7 a.m., at 3.30, you're going to feel that green chili stab. Am I right? Like, when this happens, then that happens. You all know this thing, these things to be true. You hypocrites. But why does Jesus say this? Why does he call them hypocrites? Again, like he's done many times over the past few chapters, he's making an argument from the lesser thing to the greater thing. If the lesser thing is true, then how much more will the greater thing be true? Remember, we've seen over the past few weeks, if... God cares for the ravens and the lilies. How much more will he care for you? If the Son of Man can heal your physical sickness, how much more will he heal your spiritual sickness? And here, if you can interpret the earth and the sky, you people who have no real understanding of like meteorology and the atmosphere, how much more should you be able to understand what is happening right in front of you? Like you do not understand upper wind pressures and moistures in the sky, but you just know these things to be true, what I'm saying is I'm right here in front of you. This is immediately clear. If you can understand this, how much more should you understand this? The Son of Man is coming in his glory to take his throne in Zion. God himself has come to reign over his people, to dwell among his people, to transform from within his people. Boom, boom, boom. It's happening, people. The king is here. Jesus is saying, I am here and you do not recognize me. I am here as clear as a gigantic rain cloud overhead and none of you are grabbing rain jackets or umbrellas. You do the relatively hard thing, but then don't do the comparatively easy thing, which is right in front of you, you hypocrites. Here's the thing about this passage. When we see even perhaps with our uh, subtitles printed in our Bibles, when we see this, this phrase saying like, interpret the times or interpreting the times, we see a passage like this and we're like, ooh, end times passages. We're here to think about and talk about the apocalypse or something. And there are other places, especially in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is saying, hey, read the room, people, interpret the times and understand what this means for my second coming. But this passage here is all about his first coming. Now, when he is speaking here, 
presently, in that moment, Jesus is saying a new time has come. And like last week, the arrival of the Son of Man comes either as a time of reward for those who have invested in his kingdom, or on the other hand, and only with two alternatives, either with reward or it comes as a time of destruction for those who have invested only in the temporary, which are now and gone. These giant dust poofs that are coming out of empty duffel bags that we have tried to stuff with all of our material things that are now gone. But all of this is coming. His arrival in this generation as he arrives in Jerusalem that then can absolutely relate to us. This generation now, our generation presently as we await his second arrival, his second coming. Both are future events to his hearers. Them then, a future event of his coming arrival into Jerusalem to claim his throne and to be raised up over his people in his ascension of his throne at the cross and in his resurrection and his ascension. And to us, in his second coming. Both events, future but certain events for whoever hears him. It is a certain foregone conclusion. And so if this is the case, that, his, that the future is certain, it is a foregone conclusion that Jesus is coming, then this brings an immediate urgency to the present. And so now secondly, the urgency of the present. If Jesus is certain to arrive as king and to claim his throne, what does that mean for today? Verse 57, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The image Jesus is painting here is like of a guy that you owe like $100,000 to. And this guy is bringing you to court because you have not paid your debts. Jesus is saying, all right, this guy is having you walked down the street to the courthouse. And as you're walking, you need to settle your debts now. Don't let it get to the courthouse. Get your accounts in order now, like in the streets, on the sidewalk, confess the wrong, pay some of it now, do whatever it takes to get this to be settled before you enter the courthouse. Because once you get into the courthouse in front of the actual judge, who knows what's going to happen? And it's likely not good. This judge is not going to just allow you to settle your debts. He'll throw you in a debtor's prison for being late in the first place, for letting the societal order break down. Once you're in debtor's prison, you can't work off the debt. You can't work at all. So it becomes very much more difficult for you to pay off the debt if you get thrown in prison. Don't let it get to that point. In debtor's prison, you will likely be beaten and mistreated as an incentive to your family and friends to pay the debt as quickly as possible. Don't let it get to that point. Again, like last week, there doesn't have to be like a strict spiritual correspondence with every detail of Jesus's parables. You might be thinking, wait, who's the judge and who's the officer? You don't have to do that. He's just giving a story and a scenario that everyone would understand. It's easy to not pay your debts when there's no threat. If no one really cares, so you think, if there's no urgency, then why settle your debts? But when the collection is due, or else, you would absolutely understand that moment. 
oh shoot, I might literally be thrown in prison for the rest of my life. Whatever it takes, I need to settle this now. The certainty of judgment in the future would bring an immediate urgency in the present. The moment is now, Jesus is saying to his hearers, both then and now, today. Like the man being dragged through the streets, our sin puts us into a place of massive debt before the Lord. Indebtedness to the Lord. As our creator, we owe him our entire life. We not only move about every day in indifference to this reality, but often in opposition to this reality. Working against his good rule in the world by harboring hatred in our hearts against others whom God has created. Working against his good rule by using others for our own advancement, for our own selfish desires. Throughout Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, Paul makes this case that all humans, each and every one of us, daily reject God and do the opposite of good. But God both demands righteousness, he demands conformity to his own character for the good of his world that he has put us in to rule in his, on his behalf, and yet we reject this role and we reject him, we reject righteousness, we reject what is truly good and truly noble and true and just and right. And so Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin, what we earn by this rejection of God, by this opposition to God, is death, is separation, is judgment. And so God actually gives us what we want, separation from him. We didn't want to be near him in the first place, so he just gives us what we want, to be free of his presence. But to be free of God's presence is to be free of all joy, to be free of all peace and hope and love, to be free of belonging and meaning. And so to remain in this place of separation is to remain in the place of the debtor's prison in which there is absolutely no way out. When there's no immediate threat, it's easy not to think about your debt. But Jesus is saying, the time is now. Get your accounts in order, in the streets, on the sidewalk, confess your wrong, do whatever it takes, get it done before you're hauled before the judge. To do what God tells his people in Isaiah 1, where God says to his people, come now, let, let us reason together. There is a time of judgment coming, so let us talk about your sin, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow, God tells his people. How? Well, through the coming cross of Christ, that in Christ you can be washed in the blood of the lamb of his coming cross. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans 6, 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What good news. Last week we asked, have you considered that the warning of divine wrath may be God's sweetest grace to you? Have you considered that? Might today be a day of salvation, of having your sins forgiven, your accounts settled, your debts paid, even new credit applied so that the overwhelming generosity of God's grace to you might spill out and over your accounts. There is no urgency when there is no threat of paying debt, but when the threat of debt being owed and being paid is here, there is immediate urgency. So again, as we considered last month, the decision to follow Jesus is costly and therefore must be carefully considered. The decision to follow Jesus is urgent 
now, today, and therefore must be made. And the decision to follow Jesus is worth it and therefore should be made. And it can be yours today. But Jesus goes on, that there is more certainty coming which heightens the urgency of today even more. Verse one of chapter 13, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So with all of this talk about judgment, some of the folks in the crowd either ask or tell Jesus about some news about his fellow Galileans who were in or around the temple down in Jerusalem when Pilate, the Roman governor of the entire region, killed these people, killed these Galileans, and got their blood and mixed it with the blood of their own sacrifices, presumably the blood of their sheep or goats. It's not really clear why the people have brought this up in this context, but Jesus' answer seems to indicate that they were saying, so, so this is what you're talking about, Jesus. These guys were making sacrifices, but they had tons of sins that they were actually unrepentant about. And so God is using Pilate to bring judgment and justice. This is what you were saying, right? Like, repent or else. And we see the or else with these Galileans, right? Verse 2, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, it seems to, or it seems like Jesus is saying, no, people, it's not because they were worse sinners. But then he seems to affirm, but if you don't repent, you'll also be murdered by the government. Even more, he then says, hey, you guys heard about the news about 18 people who got crushed under that tower that fell over? Again, that didn't happen because those 18 people were worse sinners than everyone else, but... If you don't repent, you'll also end up getting crushed by a tower or worse. So what's going on here? The people are asking, is God giving what the people deserve? They're asking about human wickedness and about violence. But Jesus throws in what seems to be accidents, perhaps architectural accidents, or even potentially a natural disaster that caused this tower to fall. Basically, Jesus is trying to get, to get the people to think, when people unexpectedly or even violently die, is it God's judgment? Is this God's judgment when people unexpectedly or violently die? Here, Jesus says, no. No, these people did not die because they were worse off than others. Unlike many televangelists who very confidently declared that the 9-11 attacks were God's judgment on the people of New York in 2001, or Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on the people of New Orleans in 2005. Again, these are very similar examples to the ones that these people are bringing up. Examples of human wickedness and of violent murder, or of potentially natural disaster. Jesus is saying death doesn't necessarily come because some are worse off than others. But here's what he is saying. That the deaths of these people that they experienced is the same death that comes for us all. Maybe not unexpected, maybe not violently, but the same death that comes for each and every one of us. That is... The absence of tragedy in your life does not necessarily mean God's approval of your life. Remember, when there's no immediate threat 
it's easy to not think about your debt. Maybe in high school you read the Hemingway novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. But that phrase, For Whom the Bell Tolls, comes from a poem by a guy named John Donne, who in the early 1600s wrote this. He said, And therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. In modern English, whenever you hear the funeral bells at the church ringing, don't ask who died. Why? Because those bells are ringing for you. Every funeral, every death should be a reminder of what comes for you, for each and every one of us. Every funeral that I ever preach, I read a reflection by a young husband and father who had recently received a diagnosis of of terminal brain cancer. He since has died from that cancer, but at the time he wrote, One of the best metaphors I've heard of modern life is that of a car headed towards a cliff's edge while billboards line both sides of the road blocking the driver's view. These billboards are all the distractions that society has to offer. Netflix, sports, movies, music, everything you consume to avoid thinking about where you are ultimately headed. And these billboards cover your view until the end of the road when suddenly the cliff approaches. Then, as your car is flying in the air, that's when you start thinking about the meaning of life. Friends, do not wait to think about what is actually and lastingly meaningful, what is actually and lastingly important, what is actually and lastingly necessary until it is too late. Do not distract yourself to death. When there is no immediate threat, it is easy to not think about your debt. This is the whole point of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, that life is so short. It is but just a breath vapor on a cold morning. Perhaps you saw it for the first time this week when you went out to your car, the very first cold breath vapor. That is life. A puff, here, gone, and forgotten. Our lives are like the TSA line at the airport. They're like winding and relatively short. Some unknown number of people have gone before us in the line. We have no idea who they are. We don't care. And some unknown number of people will come behind us. We also don't know who they are and we don't care. But we are convinced that our time in line is just super, super important and unique because of reasons, because I am so important and unique, but you aren't, and we aren't, here, gone, and forgotten. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, and each day that God gives us is a gift. This day, this day could literally be your last. Have you thought about that? That your heart will literally And actually, yours, not someone else's, not someone else's in a biology book, not your grandparents, but your heart will stop beating one day. It will no longer get the oxygen that the rest of your body needs to the places it needs it. Your brain activity will stop. Yours. And there are a thousand different ways that that could come for you. Like the universe tries to kill you every day in a thousand different ways. 
The human body is remarkably resilient, but it is unbelievably fragile. And a failure to repent, a failure to agree with God about the nature of your sin, to agree with God about our overwhelming need for grace, and a failure to agree with God about our overwhelming need for grace, for kindness, for forgiveness, for peace, and for belonging, a failure to agree with God about all of that, and to come for him for that grace, leaves you exposed to the eternal effects of death. Leaves you exposed to the eternal effects of separation from God. It's like, even though there are dark clouds and wind and lightning, you still walking around without an umbrella. Exposed and unprepared. Overconfident and naive. Die before you die, C.S. Lewis once said. There is no chance after. He means die to your life of spiritual self-worship before you physically die. We often consider the symbol of baptism as cleansing and of resurrection, but it is just as much a symbol of death. We say, when we baptize someone, buried it in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Like Jesus, we only bury those who have died. We don't bury living people. We bury those who have said with God, in agreement with God, yes, this old self is mortally wounded, is dying. Not perfectly, not fully, but by faith saying, yes, Lord Jesus, I need your grace. I need your kindness. I intend with your help to obey your commands and to walk in the fellowship of your church. And so the invitation that Jesus is giving is to step into that death today. It is the death that leads to life. There is no chance after. And then with one more turn, Jesus then tightens the screw one more time. In verse 6, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. The imagery of the vineyard is one of the most prominent symbols throughout the entire Old Testament. I count nine different times in five different books where the covenant people of God are referred to as a vine planted by God and tended by him to yield fruit. Most often, when the prophets use this imagery of a vine or of a vineyard, they are condemning Israel because they are not producing fruit. Here, while Jesus has a fig tree that he's using here and not a vine, the fig tree is in the midst of the vineyard, and he is absolutely following in this tradition of the prophets, of fruitless vineyards. There is a longer and more explicit parable in this vein coming in Luke 20. But this fig tree, having now grown for three years, it is old enough to be producing fruit. A three-year-old fig tree should be doing what it should be doing by this point, but it's not. It's fruitless. It's taking up spaces, or it's taking up space and resources from the rest of the vineyard. The vine dresser doesn't quite want to give up on it yet. He tells the owner of the vineyard to give it one more year of care and of attention. And after that, if it's still not producing fruit, then we can cut it down. But you'll notice the story just ends. Jesus doesn't tell us what happened in year four. There's, it just is left hanging. 
There are like two alternate universes in which the tree responds and begins to produce in health, or it doesn't, and then gets completely ripped down, destroyed, to be replaced with a tree that will produce. Now, parables like these, especially on the heels of all of this warning, might come to us like, hey, people, get your act together. Stop sinning, turn to God, obey him, or else. Or else he's going to cut you down and replace you with someone who will actually do what he wants you to do. But when we read Jesus' parables, especially in light of how they fit within the rest of the Bible, even how they fit with his teaching in the other gospel accounts, then these parables can take on different light. In John 15, while Jesus there is still following in the prophetic tradition of talking about Israel as the vine of God who is not producing, Jesus says something startlingly different than any prophet who had ever come before him. He is telling Israel, he's telling his hearers that they are a fruitless vine, but then he says about himself, I am the true vine. I am the one to whom Israel always pointed. I am God's true and faithful son, unlike Israel. I am the one who can, because of faithful obedience to God, be actually able to produce the good fruit. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of, among other things, the temple of the entire system of cleansing. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish feasts, including the Passover itself. He is even the fulfillment of a different people, like Moses, all that existed in preparation for and in pointedness to him, to his coming. So there in John 15, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am the true people of God. I am the one in true covenant with God. All of the promises made to ethnic Israel, including the preservation of their land, so often referred to as the vineyard, now get absorbed and fulfilled in this man. All of this isn't to say that Jesus is here to condemn the Jews or even replace the Jews, but that he has come to create an altogether new people made up of Jews and Gentiles alike that are all equally attached to him, the true vine. He is the vine, and his new people who share in his life are the branches. Even if you've never walked around one of the wineries, the vineyards in the valley, my guess is that you've seen a tree, right? If you've seen a tree, even if you live in New Mexico where there aren't very many of them, it's very difficult for you to say, where does the tree, the trunk, end and the branches begin? Where does the trunk end and the branch begins? It's hard to say. To ask another question, what is a Christian? How do you say that person is a Christian? Someone who's an American? Someone who goes to church? Someone who goes to the right kind of church? Someone who shares the right kinds of things on social media and votes the right way? Someone who believes the right kind of perhaps propositional truths, theological truths about God, about Jesus? Well, to say something provocative, I think I've said this here before, it's not enough to believe those things. It's not enough to believe that. This is where I'm getting provocative here. It is not enough for someone to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It is not enough 
to say that you believe that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died on the cross and was raised to new life. Not enough to believe that he ascended to heaven and now rules over the universe. Do you want to know why I know that believing all those things is not enough? Because even the demons believe all of those things about Jesus. And they shudder. They do not believe. They do not, they do not believe enough that they have his life, that they have spiritual life. Someone who, apart from any spiritual life of their own, this is a Christian who receives a second spiritual birth by God, by clinging to him in desperate faith, clinging in faith to Jesus Christ as the Lord and King of everything in my life. And by this faith, this spiritually dead person gets the life of Jesus himself injected into their spiritual veins so that it almost becomes difficult for this person to say where Jesus ends and where he or she begins. United to him. This is what Paul is getting after in Galatians 2.20, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now... The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The the life of Christ now coursing through my veins where Paul can say, it's hard to say where Jesus ends and I begin. I'm so united to him. In faith, I have his life. I don't just believe the right things about him, but I am him. I am united to him. And so Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you. Abide, live, dwell, reside in, remain in Jesus, and he will remain in you. And you see that there is a mutual abiding there, a mutual remaining. Abide, remain in him, and he will abide, remain in you. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to even begin to create and maintain spiritual life within yourself. Only the vine can give you that life. But just as we thought about last week, there is a call to keep ourselves in the keeping love of God. So Jesus tells us to remain there, to remain in him. Every few months or so, I get just like pounded in the gut when I remember something that I once heard John Piper say. And he said, I am astonished at people who say they believe in God, but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. You hypocrites, (laughs) Jesus might say to us. You say that you believe that all joy in the world is to be found in me, and you give me like 2% of your attention. Abide in him, intentionally, with discipline, just as Kyle reminded us in a busy season of this upcoming holiday season. With discipline, remind yourself to remember how good he is. How? By reading the Bible. Read books about the Bible. Pray, like actually pray. Make Sunday church attendance a non-negotiable for your week, gathering with God's people. Do you want to know why you're discouraged by the lack of fruit in your life, this fruitless fig tree? You want to know why you're discouraged by your lack of joy or peace in your life? Likely, though not always, but likely, we're giving him 2% of our attention. And just wanting him to just give us everything. I don't want to abide in you. Just you give me all the good parts. It's like an apple who is almost intentionally trying to pull away from the branch. There's just a thread or two of connection. But of course, there's little to no life in that apple. And so Jesus is saying, here, 
back in Luke 13, that there are two alternative universes ahead of you. There is, you are at the fork in the road. The story ends. There is no year four. We do not know what happens to this fig tree because the fig tree is you. There is a fork in the road, a road that is connected to him, united to him, ready for him, for his arrival and for his return, anticipating, anxiously waiting, and ready or disconnected from him, unprepared, in debt, not ready. There is blessing or there is destruction. There is joy and there is loss, life or death. The future is absolutely certain, without a doubt. It is a foregone conclusion. Jesus' arrival here as king and his second arrival to finally, fully, and eternally reign over the cosmos as our king. Just as Kyle mentioned earlier, there will be a time where every knee will bow, every tongue confess. It comes for us all. We will all get to the place of recognizing Jesus as king. Will that time be a time of great joy or a time of great loss? Therefore, the present is urgent, certainly in our initial decisions to know and to follow Christ. If you have not come to him in repentance, come to him for salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Do not go another day without coming to him to have your sins forgiven. But it is also urgent for the rest of us in ongoing and daily decisions to keep following Christ, to abide in him today, that he might abide in us, to keep knowing him, to keep ourselves in the keeping love of God. One with himself, I cannot die, we sang just a few minutes ago. That those who are united to him, it becomes really difficult to say where the life of Christ ends and the life of you begins because one with himself, I cannot die. And if he, the true vine, lives, I must live. He, the true vine, cannot die, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Two ways to live, two roads ahead of you. The future is certain. What does that mean for today? What does that mean for today for each and every one of us individually? What does that mean for us together as a church? What does that mean for the world? Next Sunday, as we do uh, the, the week before the four weeks of our Advent season, we're going to think about who we are as a church by way of missions. What are we doing and why? Who do we support and why? What do we want to be about and why? So Kyle is going to be preaching next week from Psalm 46. Yes, Psalm 46. I can't wait. So let's come back together next week to apply all of these things that we've been thinking about in the Gospel of Luke for what that means for us and beyond. And then two weeks from today, hey, everybody, we get to sing Christmas songs. We're going to think about the coming, first coming and second coming of Jesus through the lens of four psalms, Psalm 20, 21, 22, and 23. These are psalms all about Jesus as king, Jesus as shepherd, Jesus as our friend. And so I can't wait to spend these weeks together with you. But as we wait expectantly for his return, might it even come tonight? Let's pray now for this reality to affect our days, both now and forever. Oh Lord, we pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come 
right all of the wrongs in this world. Come right and bring justice to all of the injustices in this world. Come to bring finally and fully an end to our sin, an end to our endless little quests to find joy that are always, always unfulfilling. Help us to be fulfilled in you. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of and that we would be convinced of your coming, your second advent, your arrival again to reign and rule as king over the cosmos. We pray that we would be, that we would be so certain of this that it might cause us to live differently this day, to love differently this day, to trust in you differently this day, to repent more ongoingly this day, to trust in your kindness and your grace this day, we pray. We pray all of these things for your glory and for our own deepening joy and good. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.